If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. The Institute of Art and Ideas, articles, videos, and podcasts. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, the podcast that brings you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. Stories about the world are not descriptions. We imagine them as being descriptions of stuff out there. And I don't think that's what's going on. Truth. Is it an attainable reality or merely an illusion? On this week's episode, we've invited our speakers to debate this fundamental question. The people who have tended to define what truth is, what's commonly accepted knowledge, have also tended to be in the majority. Anyone who's in a minority position knows that there is no such thing as the truth. Today, we're joined by three leading thinkers. Post-realist philosopher Hilary Lawson, journalist and broadcaster Paul Mason, and sociologist Ella McPherson. We join them as they attempt to deconstruct the mechanics of knowing. The reality itself is in flux. Reality itself is, is, is always changeable. So the attempt to capture it in a series of syllogisms, A equals A, that is a glass and so is that. Well, no, they're different things. They're actually decaying at different rates. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter at IAI underscore TV. Leave a review on iTunes and head over to our website, iai.tv, to hear more from the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. And if you enjoy our podcast, you might also enjoy Philosophy Talk, a radio show, podcast and online community created by our friends at Stanford University. Check it out at philosophytalk.org. Back now to Roger Bolton, our host for this week's debate. So, are we all suffering from the illusion that we can uncover the truth? Hilary Lawson. Thank you, Roger. Well, I guess my, my brief answer is yes. I think we are at risk of uh, suffering from the illusion that we might uncover the truth. Uh, and I guess the real question, I, I think, is, well, why are we so attracted by this illusion? Um, I mean, truth is such a beguiling uh, word. It seems to offer so much, uh, as if we might be able to arrive at fully understanding how things are and it enables us to end conversations you know well that's just true and it enables us to justify actions we can say both 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 the terrible actions and the good ones um so on a personal level truth is beguiling but it's also been beguiling at a social level truth was uh 
central to the Enlightenment, to the idea of gradually uncovering knowledge and discovering how it is, to, to the idea of social progress, that we were going somewhere, that we might arrive somewhere. So truth has indeed been uh, a particularly beguiling idea. But I'm going to argue that it is an illusion. Uh, it's a fantasy. And um, it may be a powerful fantasy. Uh, it may be, in a sense, a valuable fantasy. But it's a fantasy nevertheless. And I think that I'm going to argue that that's because our language and our theories and our stories about the world are not descriptions. We imagine them as being descriptions of stuff out there. And I don't think that's what's going on. Our language and our accounts of the world, our, our narratives, are tools to enable us to do things. They function by taking what I would call the openness of the world and holding it in specific ways. And we hold a world in a particular way, and as a result of that, we're able to do different things with it. So if I say, you know, this glass, um, you can say, well, what sort of glass is it? Is it, uh, is it fragile? Is it whatever it would it be? But I might say it's not a glass. It's um, actually a collection of silicon atoms, in which case I'd have a rather different series of questions that would follow from that account. You know, what's the array of the silicon atoms? What's the, uh, what's, how, do, how do they function? Or I might say about it, it's an example in a talk, in which case the question is, well, did it, was it, did it work as an example? Was it effective? Was it not effective? So the way that we close the world changes how we intervene with it. And our choices are not between the correct description, which is impossible because language is a tool, and you wouldn't say, do you have the true computer? You might have a better or worse one, or do you have a true lawnmower? No, you have a better lawnmower or a worse lawnmower, but you don't have the correct one. And I think the same thing is, is the case with our language. And I think we can, despite that they're only tools, we can refine those tools. If we have one that doesn't quite work, then we can see how it operates and change how it works to try and get it to work better. Are we all suffering yeah. from the illusion that we can uncover the truth? Paul. If you want to categorize me, I am a Marxist, okay? Now what we uh, think is that we solve the problem, or we try to solve the problems that you've outlined there uh, in the following way. The assumption is that the reality our brains are recording is real and, and that our brains are a part of that reality. That is, we, I am a monist. I believe there is, there is no soul or intelligence separate than matter. And in the process of recording this matter in my brain, there are two sort of added bits that, are, that historical materialism brings to the question of how we know things, epistemology. One is that it says the process of knowing is active. It's interactive with the world and not, as in Immanuel Kant, a sort of passive sort of a photography paper trying to record what's going on. The way I know that, that the physics of an aeroplane are right is that I can write them down and together with someone on the other side of the world, we can both try and fly the aeroplane according to its rules and it will generally, generally fly. So 
It is not passive cognition, there is an active cognition. The second part is it is a social cognition. I just described on purpose, it wasn't me predicting what, how the aeroplane would, would work, it's me and a lot of other people. Now you are quite right that uh, we, we evolved language as a way of representing the world in, as our brains perceive it. And you are also quite right that our modes of perception depend on levels of abstraction. Therefore, the glass is a glass at the level of abstraction of physical reality, of, 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 of molecular, it's, it's sand and whatever else it is. Uh, some, at, at a quantum physical level, it, you can't even touch it without changing it. But, okay, Paul, but the all question these was, things, the question all was, things Paul, are... Are we all suffering from the illusion that we can uncover the truth? Therefore, it is not an illusion that one can have accurate knowledge, but that the knowledge itself... To, first, first thing, the reality itself is in flux. Reality itself is, is, is always changeable. So the attempt to capture it in a series of syllogisms, A equals A, that is a glass and so is that. Well, no, they're different things. They're actually decaying at different rates. Because reality changes, first of all. The second thing is, for, for me, for Marxist, the truth is also contradictory. That is, if I say, if somebody asks me, what is neoliberalism, what is the system we live in, I will say, it's a thing that's falling apart. For me, truth is a quality of human thought, not a quality of reality. That is, um, it, I can say, I would never say there is an absolute truth. So, as, I mean, my job as a journalist is to, is to, first of all, try to record facts as I see them. I think that can be done. That doesn't mean I've, I've achieved truth, but it, it does, I do think that one can make ac accurate and testable statements about reality that we have codified over 400 and odd years into the scientific method. Uh, it, Difficult and problematic though the scientific method is, the reason it is under attack now, which is what I think we all want to talk about soon when we've all done this, is because of, of a project of irrationalism in which a certain section of humanity actually wants to try well, and deny the possibility of accurate perception. All right, let me put one, other, one last question here for you. So, are you saying there are facts? No, I'm, there are certainly facts. They exist in books of facts. But, but facts no. are... are, are fa weirdly, as a materialist, I will agree with you that language is simply a, an, an attempt to frame things. Of, the word fact is one of them. Well, no, hold on, hold on. Is reality no, exists? Hold on. Reality exists. Yeah. So to the extent that reality is truth, truth exists. And, our, our perception of the reality... Mm -hmm. It may be impossible for us to be for to perceive reality fully, but uh, underneath, but underneath yeah. that is a reality. Are, are you are you saying there is the a reality? The reality is out there. It, our, our attempts at cognition are always inadequate because the, somebody will always do better. You know, the, the Copenhagen interpretation comes on top of Maxwell, comes on top of Newton. It always gets better, and, and therefore I do not expect us ever to achieve stasis with a a. The, we have now perceived phenomenon A as true as it's going to get, number one, but in the process of perceiving, phenomenon A has moved into A plus one. And so it's just, I'm, 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 I'm dwelling at the level of epistemology because it's not often you hear Marxists do this because they're all interested in the class struggle, but because I think that it, it, is, it was, this mode of thought came, out, came precisely out of a critique of of both dualism, mind and matter, and attempts at materialism that could not explain change, and indeed could not explain falsification. Right. Uh, 
I'll come back in a moment to a number of those issues. Ella, uh, can I bring you back to that first question that, you, that we've asked you to address, which is, are we all suffering from the illusion that we can uncover the truth? Great. Okay. Good question. Um, I agree with the illusion part, but my answer to the question is no along three dimensions. First, it's, it's with respect to this notion of we all. Are we all suffering from this? No. Some people are suffering from this, and these are the people who traditionally have been used to establishing the truth, right? The truth that we all agree with, that we all accept. Scientists, academics, politicians, journalists, that kind of thing, right? Which, if we think about it, for example, in this country, are categories that have tended to be represented by those in the majority. And so I can understand how losing the power to have a monopoly on the definition of truth feels like suffering. So I'm going to come back to that suffering thing. Um, this gets me on to my second vehement no. Um, and this feeds right into the conversation you've been having, although I really struggle with this myself. And I think every, you have to be, you, to be human, you have to struggle with this, OK? Um, which is about the idea of the truth, right? Like one truth, objective truth. And getting back to what I just said about the fact that um, the people who have tended to define what truth is, what's commonly accepted knowledge, have also tended to be in the majority, anyone who's in a minority position knows that there is no such thing as the truth. So I'm talking about identity minorities like um, gender, race, nationality, sexuality, class, etc. So um, some examples here of truths that have been told um, are thankfully no longer so prevalent. And I'm going to come at this from my own identity perspective as a woman. For example, there used to be truths that were, you know, a woman is too emotional to have a vote, right? A woman's place is in the home. And here I'm talking about truth as Foucault understands this, um, which is thinking about, um, you know, separating from the idea that like let's you know debate about the glass of water but actually thinking about the connection between truth and power and so that something we can call it true and we can separate that discussion from whether or not this exists and is water etc by saying that it is true if it has a change in the world so whether or not it's true or false if it is a, a language a discourse that goes out and has an effect on the world then it is true Right. So um, those ideas I just said about, you know, Sorry, women... I, I don't understand that because yeah. what you're in effect saying that the truth uh, is not objectively verifiable by anyone else. And simply the fact of me saying it, it somehow makes it true. It might make it true to me, but it doesn't have any objective truth, does it? So there's two things here. One is I'm talking about sort of communally held truths that actually go out in the world and change things and organize the way that society functions, et cetera. So not necessarily truth in a conversation um, by the by. Um, second of all, I mean, and this connects to that question of you know, these things that exist. I think this is, this, it's almost like you're talking about multiple ways of talking about a glass of water, and I'm talking about multiple ways of talking about truth, so that we can have this version where we look at truth and power, and we can abstract that from whether or not it's reality. Um, and this is where I struggle. I struggle because there are certain truths I want to believe. For example, I want to believe that medicines cure illnesses, right? But then how do I then connect that to what I just said? Um, well, one of the things is thinking about how is it that we understand medicine and science and who, what is the power behind that and who benefits from us understanding it that way, which doesn't necessarily mean it has to be false, right? But just that there are two dimensions going on there. I think there's a problem here that we're talking about the truth 
On the other hand, some people are talking about truths. Then you're referring to other things there which are political perspectives. And then you're talking at some other point about facts. Uh, we're, we're, we're using the truth in such a flexible way. Uh, if you go and stand outside the, uh, there and look at the hills, you see a mountain. In terms of the mountain, in a sense, that isn't the area of truth that I'm engaged with analytically because I don't, I agree with you, there's a mountain there. If so you, you accept there are different forms of truth? Yes, I accept there are different forms of truth. If you were to say to me, there's a mountain there and others, on the other side are our enemies and we must fight them, that's a, that's a truth that then turns into a discourse. Right, Can we, the reason we're, this, this is you know, more than just a philosophical discussion is obviously because of post-truth politics. So let's examine that. I mean, Hillary, let's start with you. You have doubts about truth. Do you have doubts about post-truth? Well, it's been sort of, you know, uh, how, how one uses this particular term. It was initially used in the way that was described to be critical of those who uh, uh, were emotional, and particularly in the context of Trump. It was seen as uh, use of post-truth. I think in another way, you could see that the word post-truth has had echoes for the reasons that all three of us in one form or another are, are posing some questions about the idea of just simply being able to access simple facts. And indeed, it rebounded, the use of the word post-truth rebounded on those people who used it initially, and they found themselves uh, uh, the jibe of those people that they claimed uh, were post-truth um, uh, folk initially. So let's not get into the detail of what we define as post-truth. If we take the example of the, the post-truth politics, I think it is true that the um, development of a, a culture in which it looks as if people can just be emotional and not engage in the rational uh, response to their position and evolve, if, 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 if developing their position in, in, in response to uh, how it functions is threatening. And, but I don't think that means that we have to endorse the idea that there is a truth out there which is what makes everything work. I think that... You, but the, who's the, proposed that? The, the, oh, sorry, I thought you had. No, no, you keep using the truth as opposed to truths and as opposed to facts. If Donald Trump says, for example, yep. with the birth of conspiracy, nudge, yep. nudge, wink, wink, Barack Obama actually is not an American citizen, yep. was it Kenyan or something else, there is at the basis of that a fact or a truth. I mean, so either it's true or it's false, or I would say it's a fact or it's not a fact. Are you saying, actually, it doesn't matter? It absolutely does matter that uh, you can follow through the things that people say and you can challenge what they say in the light of applying their closure. So if somebody says, you know, this is how it is and they have got a framework for operating with it, I want to pick up their framework and say, well, if you think that, then surely this is the case. What I don't think that I can do is to just move in from the outside and reject uh, their outlook as a whole because I can just say, no, that's wrong. I have to be with them in their perspective and then from within their perspective say, actually, within that framework, that doesn't make sense. That I think we can do. So you're in the White House with Trump. Yep. And he's saying uh, Barack Obama you know, is not American, is born elsewhere or, or a Muslim or something yep. like that. You enter into his world. What do you then do? Well, if, if it becomes apparent that there is a contradiction in the way that he is accounting for it, you just say, well, that doesn't make any sense. 
you, you can't have that contradiction. You don't say, uh, I've got the certificate, what you're saying isn't true. No, what you say is, I've got the certificate, how do you account for this? I've got this. What I understand from this is it means that um, uh, Barack Obama is an American citizen or whatever I think this thing proves. And and I'm say, I would be saying to Trump, what's your account of this? What's your account? Not thinking that I that the framework that I've got automatically means that this isn't the case. You've got to stand where other people are, understand what their closure is and work within that. And then if you identify contradictions within that, and that's in a sense, I think it's a lot of similarity with what I'm trying to say here, um, then you, you can say, no, you can't, you can't do that. It doesn't make any sense. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to IAI.TV for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month. And there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. So, Paul, let's come to you. I mean, what what is post-truth and how did we get here? I don't use voluntarily the word post-truth politics. That definition is not good enough for me for what's happening. Let me give you the broadest brush I can. We live inside a social system called capitalism. In about a 400-year history, let's just arbitrarily choose the year 1600, since then, its general trajectory upwards, i.e. its successes, have been based on the ever greater use and application of the scientific method rationality to human life, okay? Now, as it reaches its end and its crisis point, one of the symptoms of morbidity is that we get repeated, or we get recurrent bouts of irrationalism. Uh, George Lukács, the the Hungarian Marxist philosopher, writes very well about this, and he he gives the chronology from um, Fichte, uh, you know, in in German Romanticism, to Nietzsche, to Spengler uh, in in the early 20th century, the the, the fall of the West, Uh, Bergson, the immaterial uh, elan vital that's flowing through us all, it's non-material. The important thing about these outbursts of irrationality is that they're always the both the philosophical underpinning and the emotional underpinning of right-wing reaction. So it doesn't surprise me, after 30 years of postmodernism telling everybody Nietzsche's brilliant, that the right finally realised that he has a great use and that Foucault, I'm afraid, has a, an amazingly good use for the right, which is to say nothing's true, um, nothing can be verified, and therefore your suggestion that vaccines, a measles vaccine helps the herd effect and we can uh, cure um, diseases uh, is wrong. I've got an equally valid suggestion that vaccines cause uh, major diseases and major dysfunctions of human uh, autism, etc. Therefore, I, I, I demand the right for my truth to be there. So we're not in a post-truth situation. What we're in, and I want to introduce another concept here, we're in a situation where the, the successful ideologies, ideology is the concept I want to, to introduce, of, of capitalism are, are challenged from those who want to 
break it apart. You, you look at, um, at Lysenko, uh, the, the, the Soviet scientist who said that um, ant plants could pass on changes that happened to them in their lifetime. And therefore, that if you just manipulated a plant in its lifetime, it could genetically pass on what you'd done to it to the next generation of plants. Bullshit. Um, people were killed. People were, uh, real geneticists were jailed uh, and, and exiled for objecting. So Stalinism, and Nazism and all forms of totalitarianism in, in general have, have done that. Hannah Arendt, who you know, was also someone who believed in truth, uh, uh, said that the, 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 the feature of totalitarian regimes, Stalin and, and Hitler, was that it was facilitated at the moment where large numbers of people ceased to believe not only in the possibility of truth, i.e. truth versus falsehood, but also the, ve the possibility of things being verified. But you've moved from an analysis of capitalism to yep. the use of the word totalitarianism. Yeah, because I think totalitarianism is a late-stage phenomenon of, of capitalism in crisis in the okay. 20th century. Right. So century. if this is, as you as a Marxist believe, a, a, an almost inevitable progression, what follows? What follows what? This post-truth period that we seem to have to go through because you say it's a, it's a consequence of a crisis in capitalism. What, what comes yeah, beyond I, it? I don't and think can, it we, yeah. can we influence what then happens or is there a certain inevitability? There's yeah. no inevitability. I think we can influence what happens. I think we fight for the scientific method um, and also for mathematics. We haven't talked about one form of language that everybody um, has missed out here is, is maths. It's not an abstraction. It's not simply an abstraction. It describes reality. So when you just on this point, when you say to here, you're saying in maths and in the scientific method, we can approach the truth. We can Where, approach it. We can approach the truth and get nearer to it. And Hillary would say that's an illusion. Yeah, I think there are a lot of different things going on here in this conversation. It's very interesting. Uh, I think the uh, I completely agree with Paul that the method that we have used, which is a combination of rationalism and empiricism, looking to see how things are and thinking through the consequences of the way that our stories operate, needs to be reinforced at the moment. I think there's a real risk that we are somehow abandoning, as it were, rationalism, empiricism, which are vital tools. But I don't think that we have to hold on to there being an underlying truth. I think the method that we should be rigorous about our rationalism to our, within our own frameworks, and we should look to see how our accounts of the world actually function in the sense of whether they achieve what we want to achieve. That I think we should do. But I think this attachment to the fact that there is an ultimate thing, or we might uncover the, the right answer, is contradicted by 10,000 years of civilization. People have always thought that they're near the truth. They've, all generations but of humans have thought that, including, no doubt, you know, the, but, the, but, most people currently. Yeah, but hold and on. it's hold not on. the case. Hold on, but you're making the case that simply because we cannot be perfect, we shouldn't try to be good. No, we didn't introduce goodness in this. All right, this no, is sure. just a, I don't mean goodness in the moral sense. All right, perfection. You're suggesting that because we can't attain complete knowledge, yeah. 
partial knowledge is not worth striving for. No, I didn't say anything of the sort. Well, yeah, I, I, the think, I, I didn't say anything of the sort. I, I think that we should, at the moment, there is indeed, because there were values to the fiction of truth. There were values to that illusion, because it did encourage us to pursue things, and it did encourage us to try and get things right. And I think what's, the, what's happened is there has indeed been an undermining of that. We become aware of perspectives. We become aware that there is thousands of perspectives in the world, and everyone has a different perspective. And we've somehow come to think that you can just pick and choose. I don't think that. I think that we have to apply rationalism and looking to see how each of those perspectives work to choose between them, but without thinking that any one of them is going to arrive. But the use of the term rationalism assumes, I would have thought, that by the application of a rational mind, you can achieve a higher degree of knowledge than if you don't use that method. Well, I would uh, dispute all of the implicit assumptions in that description. The, the idea of knowledge, the idea that, that we are going to arrive somewhere, the idea, it hasn't worked for the last 10,000 years and it's not going to work now and it's about time we gave that up and kept the method which is the bit which we need. All right, Ella, do you accept that post-truth means something? I do, but what I want to talk about is how we ended up here, if that's yeah. okay. Um, which is that I look at the post-truth context that we are living in right here, and I see it as a case of Western exceptionalism and Western arrogance, because I think if we here have been looking at other countries in the way that they have to look at us, we would have not been caught off guard by this situation. And I say this based on field work I did um, following around journalists in Mexico in the mid-2000s, where um, I was just, I was, you know, an American, educated in Britain, arriving in Mexico and um, doing ethnography and watching people, I was so puzzled and amazed by it, who would spend their lunch breaks in Oaxaca, in the city square, um, each buying one of the newspapers that also had different versions of reality, reading them and trading them, and then talking about it. And I remember thinking, what are they doing? Because it was so foreign to growing up on the New York Times and then coming here and reading The Guardian, right? It was just completely the opposite. Um, but as soon as I saw what started happening here, starting to happen, I remember speaking to a Mexican journalist and saying, were you or were you not surprised that we were surprised? Because you wouldn't have been surprised. Um, so I think we ended up here in part because one of the things that we did in the West post-war was we, we outsourced our, our verification skills, our judgment about truths to some of the big institutions and we let them do the work for us. So newspapers, the state, et cetera. And then what happened, what's, what we're living in right now, which is very uncomfortable, is a situation in which we all have to kind of re-engage those muscles, right? They atrophied and now we're re-engaging them, we're having to verify and judge, et cetera. Thing is, like any workout, yeah, it hurts right now, but it's for our benefit. We are going to get much better at decision making as citizens as we have to do this more and more. So that's why I think we're here. But why does that matter if those in power are not doing that and have worked out through modern digital technology that they don't have to uh, pay attention to facts if we accept that facts exist, that they can put forward their own interpretation without fear in the new world, if you like, that it will be significantly challenged and will be policies and political campaigns on that basis. The individual, to that extent, may themselves be able to think more critically of the world, maybe to ascertain more accurately what is happening, but they become increasingly impotent. I don't think that's the case at all. I mean, I look at, you know, I 
am teaching young people and I look at them today and I see them as so unbelievably politi politically engaged, way more than they were five, 10 years ago. And I look at movements like Extinction Rebellion, which is nothing if not a sort of reaction to post-truth claims and how that's taken over. And I see you know, people who are exercising their judgment, who are doing verification for themselves, who are building their own knowledge base as becoming incredibly politically that's mobilized. Well, yeah, but hold on, we're in a world where China uh, is able and capable of switching off digital technologies and so on. We're in a situation where in the Soviet Union you have some sort of dictatorial kleptocracy and you're a situation in, in the United States where you have a president who has, um, well, if truth exists, uh, has not a close uh, association with it, if I can put it. <laughs> I'm really stretching my vocabulary in these terms. Now, so in those sense, because you don't have control of nuclear missiles, he does, yeah. they do, what, of what value is this improvement, if you like, in our own individual understanding, if at the same time it's combined with, as it were, national and international movements, which are going in the other direction? Um, but if, who is going to change these leaders if it's not people mobilizing from below, right? So I think it's incredibly valuable that people are doing this. Can I just point out, I think it's absolutely non-accidental non that XR's slogan is, tell the truth. That's, I mean, tell us the truth, I think, is the, the literal thing. That, that is, they are making a, a, a very clear ideological challenge to, to Trump and to all, the, all those uh, autocrats and dictators because, because there, there, there either is a truth, there either is a verifiable scientific claim about, about the, the human causes of climate change or there isn't. And, uh, uh, but, but he wouldn't call it a truth. Well, no, he may, he may not, but I think... Well, I'm you do, hold on. So you do, in this instance, say, it is true that man, man makes a very significant contribution to the problems of climate change. Yes. Yeah, because so you we, think there is a truth, and yes. you don't think there is a truth. I think there are closures and narratives, and we close the world in order to have outcomes. And, uh, of course, it's an important judgment that we say, yes, I want, to, I, I want to hold this narrative. This is an important narrative. It's going to enable us to do all sorts of things and we can't just ignore it. So it's not like this idea that, well, because, you, because you, you're trying to paint me in a situation where I'm saying, because I think we have to give up what I think is actually a theological notion, truth. It's the enlightenment version of God that somehow at the end we might get there. And you want to hold on to that theological notion. I want to say no. We need to give up that theological notion, but we've got to be double down, double down on rationalism and empiricism in looking to see how our perspectives work, how our closures work. Are they, do they work effectively? Don't they? And I agree with you that there is a real risk in the current situation that in a way we're getting it exactly wrong, that we are retaining the idea of truth and everyone thinks that they're right. And you've got this series of people, all of whom are sure they're right. And at the same time, we're somehow giving up to some extent on rationalism, empiricism, and we've got it just the wrong way you've around. Moved a hell of we a long need way. the method. You've moved a hell of a long way for a situation where, on the limited but real evidence yeah. that most people think exists, man makes a real contribution to climate change, and we're worried about our grandchildren's lives, and you're saying, um, well, actually, um, no, um, no, uh, we can't be sure. I don't think he upon, is. Upon what, do you, what do you, upon what do you form the basis of taking action, cautious preventive action. If it is not, 
the best evidence available which approximates to the truth as we see it about the nature of climate change. Because I think this is the best way of holding the world, given the sorts of information that I've got, the certain sorts of perspectives that I've got. And I recognize that other people might have different ones. And I want to be able to converse with them about their version and what it might be. And if they disagree with me, I want to engage in their version and try and show, no, that's a mistake. But the idea that you can just solve things by saying to people, um, no, uh, that's wrong. Uh, this is the truth. I think is a mistake. No, it, it doesn't is. work. It is. We take sensible precautions. We take sensible precautions. We cannot know but the body of evidence is sufficiently persuasive that we should take precautions. Paul, you said that we need narratives now when you were talking to us earlier. And I want you just to explain to me whether or not those narratives have to be, are important because there are new narratives which enable us to understand more accurately the world, if that is called the tr a truth, or whether you think there's a sort of emotional need no. for us to have those narratives in order to take action in a, as a community at all. One of the things we know about ourselves, um, <clears throat> our evolutionary biology, it, must, it, 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 is, it is likely that we, at a very early stage of our, our, our evolution into Homo sapiens, when we, as soon as we had language, we were probably telling stories. I think that's a, 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 good, a, a, a hypothesis, I can't prove it. It's, it's, a, it's something very deep. But, but no, I'm not saying we need an emotional narrative, although the, the problem with the, the right is it has a utopia and the left and the center no longer have them and it has emotional narrative and we have been frightened of it. But I, I want to come back, I want to come back to, okay, okay so, so the reason we, for what that narratives function as are, first of all, they are collections of uh, of demonstrations of, of support, they're hypotheses. You know, if you go out in the woods today where there are wolves and you wear a little red riding hood, you tend to get eaten by the wolf. That's a, a kind of human, that's a, the humans trying to tell each other stories of, of provisional truth. Okay, number one. But the, let, let's take an, a concrete example of what's going wrong. I don't think your anti-realism, which is what it is, is that much of a problem. What, what was the problem? And it's something that I, I don't know whether you've written about, but, but it's there in, in social science. Bruno Latour, you always have to check when you're going to attack somebody that they're not in the audience. <laughs> Bruno Latour, the, the, the prize-winning science thinker for, in, at the Sorbonne, starts out by saying, all science is socially constructed. And you have to study scientists like you study a tribe that they've got these rituals, and if they get more papers or whatever, they get more girlfriends, that's, that's the scientist. Next edition of the book, all science is constructed. He says, because actually social doesn't come into it, where all ideas are simply constructs. This is approaching the, the anti-rationalism. Then he says, about 10 years later, shit, the, 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 the American right are using these ideas to attack the possibility of climate change being a scientific, very, very viable fact. And what he says in 2004 is an amazing admission. He said, we were wrong to attack empiricism. What we should have done was to deepen empiricism. Empiricism is the induction of, of facts and truth through looking at the world. Now, I think it's great that he did that. You can still go and study his old ideas, in fact, in, a great, in great detail in science and technology studies at university. We have to, dec we have to decide that what you said, I agree with you, that if we're going to double down on the, the scientific method, method, rationalism, mathematical and symbolic logic, uh, and 
truth claims. Because that, what we are up against is a generation of the left who drank the Kool-Aid on relativism and, and the right are now basically throwing back, that back at us um, as if to say, well, you, you were the ones who said, you know, humanity's socially constructed, Michel Foucault. Well, if it, you know, here's our attempt to construct it. White people here, men here, alpha males here, beta males here, the whole Kool-Aid of the far right, down here, black people, women, gays, and transgender. That's what they're trying to do. Um, we also need to think about who's asking the question and why are they asking it. And the thing about the scientific method and science is that science has always been very white male, you know, Anglo-American. Um, so I think we need to make sure that if we are going to reestablish these narratives and methods, et cetera, that we are cracking them open so that other people can have a voice in them as well, because that is a major flaw of what has existed to date. Well, at this point, I'm afraid we've run out of time. On your behalf, thank you for staying. Thank you for listening. Thank you to the panel. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. Please do leave a comment and review on whatever platform you listen on. And tune in next week for more debates and talks from the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. <laughs>